Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. We are rolling here late on a Tuesday afternoon. I have my co-pilot, also known as Rocky the Cat, snoring his little kibble-filled belly to sleep here. I'm rubbing his belly right now because, look, kitty cats and belly rubs, those are some of the finer things in life. And he is now digging his claws into my hands and grooming and biting. So thanks, Rock. Uh, let's see. Hey, we had a doubleheader last weekend. Let go, dude. Uh, we had a doubleheader last weekend in Iowa. I was supposed to be there. Booked flights, hotels, rental car, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, uh, the flying part didn't exactly work, unfortunately. Had the first flight canceled. And then the second, and what would have been the last flight out option on Thursday canceled and had some incredibly sweet folks on the interwebs say, well, if, if you fly into here, I can help get you there. Or instead of flying into Des Moines, why don't you go somewhere over here? And then you could run a car. I couldn't get out of where I was. So it wasn't so much a problem of where do I land? It's the. I got to be able to get on a plane to leave where I'm at before I can think about where I might land. So that whole thing failed. And then the next option for me, which was the only option was the last flight out on Friday, which would have meant would have missed basically the biggest day of content. Most important day to get stuff done on Friday. And yeah, doing all that travel and spending all that money to be there for a day and a half didn't make sense. So, um, could have tried to have gotten there and spent that travel funds, but yeah, ended up not making sense. So covered it from home and Hey, uh, learned something new team Penske, Joseph Newgarden, good in Iowa. Who'd have thunk? Ah, yeah, that was a bit of a, a Molly whopping. Wasn't it? Uh, what else can I tell you before we get into your questions? (sighs) I'm a really lucky person. You know that? lucky fortunate uh, i would say blessed because i do feel incredibly blessed that exact word comes to mind all the time but i also realize it's so kind of overly used uh that i try not to but boy uh between y'all who are just deliverers of love and warmth and kindness and positivity and my amazing wife and even just the silly cats and this life that we have and me being able to do the thing that i love like truly uh just been a super reflective state for a while now and it's not as if i ever dislike what i do or feel a lack of immense gratitude but sometimes just hits home a little bit more that this is amazing and no matter what the toll is in terms of time or exhaustion or whatever um yeah truly uh i got the best life so thank you to y'all for many of you who helped make that the case um why don't we say a big thank you to our partners in cooper tires those fine folks who make the usf championships presented by cooper tires possible discount tire who've joined us this year they are now centrally involved in the usf championships helping to grow the next generation of open wheel talent no longer have Indy Lights, we now call Indy NXT, under the USF Championships 
ladder, but we love those drivers and teams just as much as always. Definitely the Justice Brothers, makers of automotive chemicals and lubricants, many of which are used by some of your favorite racing teams, at least throughout North America, for sure. And then torontomotorsports.com, great website to visit people to visit at many motor races who sell motor racing memorabilia. So that's a thanks to everybody that makes the show possible. The cats, my wife, our partners, and y'all. Um, big thanks to the Prude, the listener group that formed around the show. Um, a friend, someone who some folks know on social media uh, by the name of Amy, going through some hard times definite hard times dealing with uh, a lot of emotional stress and was thankful to being alerted to that and then being able to reach out to members of the prude day and like an army of love to say hey it's great that y'all have become a family and spend your days whether it's private twitter chat or discord chat and just being a a fun group of folks who've come to care for each other and meet up at the tracks and do all kinds of great stuff like that is awesome but more than anything else let's do some meaningful things help others and it's just great to hear from matt philpot one of the leaders of the prude day one of the many leaders of the prude day uh who helped rally some folks connect and just try and bring some love and warmth Amy's way and let her know that there are folks out there who might not know her, but care. And so seriously, y'all, um, like these are the things that have value a money. It's not things I own. It's nothing like it's this stuff where you go, okay, these are the things in life that matter most. So just immensely, immensely grateful to the prude and their ability to just deploy love and surround folks with uh, virtual hugs or real hugs if needed. So why don't we do a little pew, 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 and uh, get the show started here. Pal Tracy at Apex, ATX, she says, did Joseph Newgarden just need a Snickers at the end of race one? Ah, that's what, among my favorite reactions, Tracy. I loved it when I saw that come in. Yeah, I uh, I think Joseph truly just needed a Snickers. Caleb Whistler and our pal Jerry Siddeth, who puts the questions together, said there were a lot of questions like this. He said, uh, how much did the hospitality structure in turn four obstruct race control's view? Of the loose wheel in turn, in race number two, in turn three. Great question. I think we have one a little later. Similar. Might not have made the cut from a pal Ryan Terpstra. Maybe I'll scroll down to find that as well here. Caleb also asks, does IndyCar itself have officials acting as spotters around the track to assist race control? Awesome questions here. Uh, On the last Yes, there are indeed dedicated IndyCar spotters. And depending on the oval, um, at least as I have seen, could be wrong. Again, maybe things have changed, but believe they're more on the ground-ish level in the corner than way up high. Knowing that, in theory, race control on an oval, 
maybe Indianapolis is an exception somewhat, but uh, most of the ovals we'd go to, that overlooking sweet complex above start finish, Texas, Iowa for sure, uh, Worldwide Technology Raceway, a.k.a. Gateway, those folks can look straight out the window, see more or less everything, use binoculars if they want to get that closer look. But in the corners, yes. Customary to have people sitting on chairs, sitting little stands, whatever it might be, eye level, observing and reporting back. So there are slash were those very same folks at Iowa. Spoke with the series today long call about many things one of them being this stingray rob wheel falling off why did it take so long for the yellow to come out seven to seven and a half seconds rough measurement of how long it took from the moment the wheel came off to the minute that the caution flag flew just for the sake of comparing other caution related items on sunday at least through the broadcast we had ryan hunter ray getting up into the wall a little bit with what 10 laps to go that happened i think during a commercial whatever it was it was some sort of transition where yellow when we came back from the commercial didn't see it happen then they replayed it so i went back to watch the replay from the moment ryan hit the wall and was looking for some sort of visuals on the track of a yellow light coming on, or when they cut to the end car, I think of Groschon going by, looking for you know the yellow light coming on the dash, steering wheel, I should say. Um, I wasn't able to pick any of that up on the Hunter Ray one, so I wasn't able to say, aha, hit the wall here, boop, hit the stopwatch function on my phone, and then boop, here's the yellow, and there's how long it took. So I wasn't able to do that there but was able to do it for Augustine Canapino's brush with the wall. And that being kind of middle of turn one and turn two, nothing to obscure anyone's view of that. I counted that out at four seconds. The moment that he glanced off the wall, roundabout, I did it twice, and I think I got 4.0-ish and 4.1 seconds. So again, we'll just call it four seconds. So seven to seven and a half for the Stingray Rob wheel falling off. By comparison to that, at least, it's decently longer. It's not forever, but long enough for those on the broadcast to say however they phrased it. But basically, I don't know why it took so long for the yellow to come out. And then a bunch of fans asking the same question and so just want to give a little bit of that background there realizing that maybe not everybody watched the race or paid as much again not everybody might understand the context of the question caleb and others so i asked why did it take so long and didn't necessarily get an answer um was told repeatedly the moment it was seen the yellow was triggered right so it wasn't a case of like a dice game going on in race control and someone said hey turn around and someone looked up oh hey yellow boop hit the button 
I don't think anybody was out, you know, everybody didn't walk out to go get coffee or take a pee break. Like, you know, there are some pretty good and diligent folks in race control. So since we probably have not seen significant examples that I can think of, of, hey, a caution thing has happened that is worthy of a caution. And well, where's the caution? Not saying they haven't happened, just saying none are really coming to mind immediately about, oh, that's glaringly obvious. Why? Ha- okay, well, there it is. But why did it take so long? So this one to me stood out as it did to many. As I was told repeatedly, this part should be obvious. I hope there was no intent to not throw the caution. There was no question as to whether a wheel and tire in the middle of the track is worthy of a caution. There's no intent by IndyCar to not react instantly. The question that I couldn't get an answer to is why was there not an instant reaction? Use the canopino thing, glances off the wall. If you count one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, four, 1,000, five. Okay. It's pretty quick. Getting to that seven, seven, seven and a half second duration. You go, all right, so this is weird. And that's just what I want to leave here on Caleb. So this was an abnormally. This did not make sense why it took so long. IndyCar said multiple times, the split second we saw it, we went yellow. So I think your question here, did that hospitality structure in turn four that blocked turn three that many of the Prudet told me about from their grandstand positions, and thank you for the insights and photos and whatnot had someone there the week before for i forget what event but sent me uh sent me an image as well i'm like yeah that's for those of you who are accustomed to sitting in the grandstands and seeing all the corners well you're now able to see three um i think you're onto something here caleb i think this is the answer if you look at indycar's reluctance to say exactly what caused the extra time it took to trigger that yellow probably comes from not wanting to throw anyone or anything under the bus they're the co-promoters of the event i would lean here as probably the answer a couple other quick things just to to wrap up so as i mentioned i think a little bit earlier if we're on a street course we're on a wherever there's really no place race control could be positioned to have eyes on the entire circuit so they rely heavily on cameras broadcast cameras are great but they got a lot of other cameras that they position around the track so uh, they try to have their eyes on everything looking at a big bank of 12 16 i don't remember how many um video screens and they're large there i mean they're tvs is basically what they are um on ovals indy 500 being again maybe the only exception it's not as if they don't have 
those monitors, but it is more of a sightline visual based thing. Looking out the dang window, seeing Canapino glance off the wall and in the time from seeing it to the time to triggering, right? That's, it's pretty quick. Why would stingrays problem something that unless you were, yeah, unless they had binoculars and were specifically watching stingrays car as that pit stop was going on and saw the wheel nut go firing forward out of the pit box, there would have been nothing that immediately jumped out to them that the left rear wheel was going to come off kid trails around the apron stays to the inside feels something's going wrong and stays kind of sort of tucked up not exactly super uh visible behind all the fencing and everything else and gets to turn three more or less hidden behind that new hospitality structure and things go sideways i could imagine a scenario very easily like you present caleb that they just couldn't see it and since this would be an event where primarily visual indicators are what they use to make such kind of calls, that's why we may have had a bit of a delay in the reaction time. Say, but hey, we were watching this at home. How do we see this and know about it before race control? Camera angles pretty good, right? Um, so they're able to zoom in and track it. And we saw it, didn't see it super well. Right. But, uh, we did kind of see the wheel come off is race control sitting there watching the broadcast. Not that I'm aware of, uh, they're pretty much in their own world. looking at their own monitor feeds and on ovals doing that pretty significant time spent looking out the window doing manual observation. So I think we got a pretty interesting scenario here where, yes, there are spotters around the track. How long did it take for spotter to see it and then cue up the radio and say to the tower, hey, we got a thing going on. Did that hospitality erection uh, block the view? Can't say for sure, but common sense might lead us in that direction. We have another thing here, too. So I think that's the answer. I have another thing here, too. I wasn't aware of until I made some calls and gained further insight. This is the part that blows my mind. So Stingray Rob, really do like the kid. Sweetheart. A little bit in over his head, but... By no means the first rookie to be in that position. He's trying. Made a ton of mistakes the first half of the season. We're 12 races in. Out of the first six, I forget what it was. I think he finished one race, one out of six. Pretty much crashed out of the rest. I think what was it? The motor blew at Barber, so that wasn't his fault. But the kid just made every mistake possible, hit everything but the pace car. Wasn't pretty. I'm not saying things have somehow become gorgeous and beautiful over the last six races, but he has done one really important thing, and that is learn from mistakes, 
dedicate himself to getting to the finish and the kid has been doing that and successfully so it's the number 51 entry that he's driving has he and that car been super competitive no not by a long shot um we're talking about attaching a super elite veteran engineering group to a rookie to give them the best shot in the world that is not the scenario that young stingray is facing but that's okay again not uncommon new driver young driver you know somewhat unheralded driver coming in you're not going to get hall of famers running your car uh by and large but here's where things have absolutely spiraled out of control so road america kid was doing okay i think he had two pit stops that were like 17 18 19 seconds long what do you do with that on such a big track for regular pit stop eight seconds nine seconds something like that on such a long track and you're giving up 10 seconds of forward acceleration to all the other cars i mean how long does it take to go from the final corner to turn one at road america i don't know what the exact time is but 10 seconds 12 whatever it is that's a lot of ground he gave up twice that amount due to pit stop errors and problems you can't hang that on the kid right as being slow or having a poor finish you go all right well if your pit stops are taken at minimum twice as long as the others on a really long track boy no hope of catching up well we saw the left rear wheel was on the car but didn't have a nut to hold it there the reason the team was disqualified this is another question number of you have sent the reason the car was disqualified is because of the team not because of the driver why granted he had to pay the penalty right he and his sponsors the ones funding that car they pay the price by not being allowed to compete and advertise what they're there to advertise and promote but the team did not tell him to stop that it's a problem hi we have sent a car out with only three of the four wheels attached this is a high speed high banked crazy track there's no runoff anywhere it's not super wide where we can take avoiding action by going in something like if we find a wheel bouncing towards us we got limited options to avoid that. Instead of coming over the radio and saying, stop the car, that never happened. That's the primary reason why the car was disqualified. The team was penalized, not only for failing to attach a wheel, but for the most egregious part, failing to intervene after knowing they sent the car without the wheel attached 
Stingray bears some responsibility here too, and I'll get to that in just a second. The part where, for those who still might not understand why it was disqualified for this single instance, this wasn't the first time the car was sent without a tightened wheel at Iowa. It happened the day before in the first race. Luckily, the kid was able to nurse the car around come back to pit lane i have to assume the wheel nut was on just not tight was able to bring the car back have the wheel affixed and keep going but this happened two days in a row two times two consecutive races at the same event stingray rob was sent from the pits without a wheel being tightened for sure the second time without a wheel nut anywhere inexcusable which is the approach taken by indycar in saying you can't play anymore unfortunately the kid is the one who suffers the reputational hit because folks look at him and go, well, he's the name we associate. But this was two days in a row. And you throw in the Road America stuff, and it's not the only time. And he's made some big, dumb errors of his own. So again, there's no point fingers in just one direction. It's a overall cluster. But I can say the kid has, for the most part, stopped making a lot of the dumb errors and has been more subject to errors of his team over the last six races than ones that he makes up on his own. Now, where I do say Stingray owns some of this, hey, you felt something wiggling, you knew something wasn't right on Saturday and you were able to nurse it home and get it fixed and keep going, great. I realized there was no communication to him on Sunday to explain the very serious nature of what was happening, but clearly he recognized there was something wrong. Was he emboldened by Saturday and his ability to get it back and go, well, hey, I felt this yesterday. I can do it again, and it just didn't work out? I don't know. I can tell you, though, the next time he feels that, If he feels that again, I'm hoping it never happens again, but if he were to feel that again this year, I would hope the mindset would be stop the car. And I also believe IndyCar will probably make it really clear. Hi, feel something wiggling around at the back of your car or front of your car? That's on you and your team. Not the other 25, 6, 7, 8, however many drivers in the field. Don't invite them into your potential calamity. This is now not a gamble to see if you could make it around. Stop. Don't put everyone else at risk. I got to believe if that message hasn't been conveyed at every driver's meeting, it'll probably be conveyed here leading into Nashville. So we tend to open the show with one or two questions that are a little bit longer than others. This one certainly warranted it. The primary questions were, why did the Stingray caution take so long? Uh, 
we also had a number of Joseph questions, so we got those covered. And then a little bit of background on, yeah, this poor kid um, having to deal with some nonsense that is not of his own making. All right, we're going to fire through the rest of your questions here in the 30-ish minutes that we have left. Justin Poley, you say, I understand to a certain extent a lot of the decisions made at the end of the second race, but why wouldn't they open the pits for people? They did it in Iowa in 2018. Were they trying to avoid a repeat of that mess? Seems a bit strange to roll around for so many laps without the option to pit. I was wrong there. This was the other big question. We're not going to take long on this. Um, this was the primary thing I was talking to the series about today. I had no issue with how they approached things, what they did. I saw nothing wrong with them doing the fast caution approach. The one recommendation I had to them, we'll see if it appears in next year's rule book, get rid of the phrase abandonment of procedure. It gives the impression that the series is just willfully and intentionally saying, we have rules, we don't care about them, we'll do whatever we want. That's not the case. They just went to a different set of rules that they can enable if they so choose that says, hey, we're going to try and get back to racing as quickly as possible. We're not going to run through some of the procedures that add extra laps, like opening the pits and then having to potentially reorder some folks based upon lapped cars and who knows what. Like, We're not going to do that. We're going to stop that or not enable that and then just simply get back to racing as soon as we are ready to do so. That's what they did. Why did they not go red, which is the question that, you know, admittedly some folks have wondered, hey, you know, uh, Hunter A smacked the wall. Um, I don't know if a yellow was really needed, but regardless, uh, why didn't we go red since there were 10 laps left and you could have preserved those 10 laps and then come back from the red and open up the pits. And once everything was clean and clean, I hear you, but this wasn't a crash. This wasn't debris to clean up. This wasn't damage to a barrier. This, right. This was a glance. And I realized that he messed up the suspension on his car, but I don't believe there were any parts of the car left on the track. And if there were, you know, very small and quick to clean up, uh, might've scraped some banners off of the safer barrier, but barrier wasn't damaged. This was everything that said, Hey, we have enough laps to get everything happy and ready to go and go back to racing. It's a really short track. And even behind the pace car laps, but go by quickly. So I realized that, well, Hey, could have, we had more, we could have had more laps if we went red. I get it. Indy 500, the reds at the end, some of those we're talking about are pretty serious crashes. Going to take a while to clean up, can see the need to the mindset that says preserve the race by going red. Now this is going to soak up some time at Iowa nothing like that so i saw no issue with it um i know some have um i don't know who but i was told there was one reporter who apparently lost their stuff and, uh, and whatever like all right whatever um i didn't see the need 
Uh, opening up the pits, meh. I, I thought this was a bit of a nothing burger. Granted, I'm not going to go write a story saying, meh, I thought it was a bit of a nothing burger with some input from IndyCar, but um, I don't see any issues with what they did. I think they just need to rebrand it as a, a fast yellow, quick yellow, fast red, quick red, whatever it might be that says, hey, we're not adding extra laps. We're not NASCAR, uh, but we do want to do everything in our power to finish the race in competition under green. And these are the measures that we give ourselves to expedite that. And I think with just a bit of rebranding there and explaining that clearly that, hey, uh the series has said they're going to treat this as a, a quick yellow scenario pits are going to stay closed nothing else is happening we're going to go right back to green as quickly as we can i think that being expressed in more non holy crap what are you doing abandoning procedures type nomenclature and a immediate conveyance of that to the broadcast team because what the broadcast team says heavily affects people's takes on things i say that as someone who knows who every sunday monday you name it after a race if the broadcast says oh my god what are they doing about whatever at whatever track whether i agree with that thing being an oh my god moment or not oh there's a bunch of folks who take that energy and say oh my god what were you doing sooner i think the series and race control troll can inform the broadcasters to say this is the approach we're taking i think this maybe gets a little bit easier to swallow thanks for sending that in by the way justin zach dean you got a question about what could be tweaked between day one and day two um yeah uh keep in mind that teams are going to take everything they did race one they are going to run through a bunch of simulation options and use that information to try and address some of those problems on day two so this could be a a longer discussion but nothing out of the norm my friend um duncan idaho 11 head of teams that aren't penske strategize around the deficits they find at iowa say folks always want to get better but is there less appetite to chase after a dominant team at an event to focus on say other tracks Awesome question, Duncan. Would say that this one will probably become, based on where it lands on the calendar next year, I would assume similar-ish time. Unless there's a whole bunch of new races added after Iowa. Come out of Iowa, five races left in the 2023 season. If it's a similar-ish number, I think teams go absolutely insane trying to test at Iowa, portion a ton of simulator effort, simulation effort, because it's a doubleheader. And boy, if you do well, as Joseph did, you go from having not no hope in the championship, but uh, somewhat remote possibilities to hey you're in the game Pelot just needs one more bad weekend and it's not like he had a bad weekend saturday wasn't great sunday was much better but 
someone wipes out Pelot on the opening lap at Nashville and he finishes 27th, this thing's wide open. Especially if Joseph or Scott Dixon or Marcus Erickson are in or around, or who knows, maybe those three are the podium. All it takes is for Pelot to have a terrible event soon and this thing's wide open and so i think with that reality being what it is i gotta believe teams are going to realize that for those who did not focus enough of their energies on iowa this just happens to fall in a place on the calendar where it can change your year for the good or bad we also had some teams who were looking pretty Right. Ray Hollerman Lanigan Racing winning the previous weekend. All of their cars were pretty decent to great, but good weekend as a whole in terms of competitive everything and absolute faceplant at Iowa. Just shows how you can be the Kings one weekend and not the other. But for those who are in title contention, Right, I mean, Chip Ganassi Racing was the closest to Penske, but whew, yeah, um, they'd have to find more if they want to believe that they could use Iowa to their advantage next year as a championship springboard, either to go farther ahead or to catch up. Um, so yeah, right now, barring something crazy where we have eight races to go after Iowa, and you go, all right, well, we still want to be good there, but having a bad weekend wouldn't kill our chances in the championship or necessarily throw us to the front of the field. If it's in similar place, which I think it's going to be, um, yeah, you need to make that investment. No doubt. Uh, where do we go next? Ed Joris is IndyCar aware. The inconsistent end-of-race procedures make it look like they're doing everything in their power to favor Team Penske. Say, I don't think they're doing that. But the appearance of conflict of interest is just as bad as actual conflict of interest. Eh, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, the appearance of guilt compared to being guilty. Uh, yeah, they don't put you in jail for the appearance of guilt. Um, so here's an idea. Write the rules down. Publicize them. If we have a caution with less than X percent of the race left, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, Y'all close here by saying, instead, the end of the race, the rules look like, what can we do to give Joseph Newgarden the best chance to win? Uh, You say, why do they leave themselves open to this when it could easily be fixed? Well, these things are all written down. Ed, none of what happened in race control on Sunday or Saturday, whatever it was made up on the spot or a surprise. You just have to know the rules. If you're a fan to understand what's happening, or since IndyCar does not broadcast its own events with its own people and messengers, as I mentioned a moment ago, get someone on the horn, say, Hey, this scenario is happening. It's within 10 laps to go. And this thing, I mean, Hunter eight, hit the wall with 10 laps to go. Um, this is what they had planned to do. If it was not a big boy, we got to clean up huge cleanup on aisle five. Like this is how they plan to do things. Um, 
Hinch, if I recall, jumped right into the, hey, back in 2018, they adopted this rule called the abandonment of procedures that allows him to do this, that, and the other, and laid all that out. So that was great on him. He was ready to go. Think they could sell it and market it in a different way so it didn't sound so haphazard, but the central point here is, yeah, I could see for those trying to find conspiracy theories that Penske wanted to do something to help Joseph win the Indy 500. So they red flagged the thing and went green with one lap remaining. And Erickson, the leader of course was going to get passed because that always happens because the aerodynamic toe until you're fully up to speed is really powerful. And here they did something to help Joseph. Like, look, man, <laughs> uh, unless they made the wrong strategy call, Joseph Newgarden was going to win that race. The guy led 341 of 500 laps over two days. Like Penske didn't need to do anything to help Joseph win the race. You could argue, well, by handling things the way they did and not opening the pits, they gave nobody else a chance of catching him. True. Again, in theory, he could have pitted as well. I get it. I get it. Um, this has not been a great year for IndyCar's, whether it's decision-making or the appearance of impartial decision-making or folks just having a clue as to what they're thinking. We've seen a few too many instances of that's a clear violation. Why did you not call it? I could, I'm not, so I just want to be clear here, Ed, I'm not pushing back on you. I'm, if anything, saying I understand how, whatever amount of folks might be of a mindset of like, yeah, man, I don't know if I'm loving IndyCar's race control this year. This one, if I ignore all the perception of what could be in conspiracy theories or underhanded, whatever, like saw Hunter Ray hit the wall, heard Hinch go right into the, Hey, they're going to do the abandonment of procedures here. They're not going to open the pits. And at least for hashtag me personally said, yeah, cool. It's exactly what I, what I would have done. Uh, I want to see this finish green. There's enough laps to do that since Hunter Ray didn't smack the wall and leave uh, a freaking yard sale out on the track. Um, so, but I hear you. Uh, can't argue with the general sentiment here. Uh, where are we going to go as we hit the old throttle to get to the finish line? Um. What caused the problems for the Foyt team at Iowa? Daniel Summersgill is asking. He said, what went wrong there? He said, Benjamin Peterson was a mobile chicane all weekend until being parked. Frucci wasn't much better. Um, he also asked, does Ed Carpenter need to stop driving and concentrate on running his team? Uh, the entire ECR team were poor during the Iowa races. Yeah. Oh, boy. The, the strongest indicator of how badly things went for ecr daniel was ed carpenter on sunday where he started what like third or something and watching and i forget exactly where he fell back to in the start but maybe it was like fifth or something and then you know i'm keeping my eye on the top 10 pretty heavily just to see who's moving around there and whatnot and kind of pretty quickly into the race reminded myself that i didn't see ed and i'm like oh i mean but he's starting third where'd he go and this was before the first pit stop and like was looking, pulled up timing and scoring. I'm like, Oh Jesus, this is bad. And kept 
sinking and sinking and sinking. Hunter A was starting at the back, qualifying, did well on his first lap, not so well on the second lap, so he started towards the back. He was stuck towards the back. Renus was, I mean, that kid's... <sighs> I know he's not having a great year. I know last year wasn't great for him as well. If you just want a driver to appreciate who is always attacking, can't stop, won't stop, uh -uh, uh -uh, bad boy for life, this kid, just saying, sadly, it's rarely in a position where the TV cameras are looking. Because they don't have a real reason to focus in on 15th place or whatever it is. If you're just looking for a party, <laughs> wherever, it's Renus VK. He's not the only one. But since there have been so few reasons to spotlight an amazing finishing position that he's had this year. Right? We look at Indy 500 qualifying and go, geez, kid, <laughs> you're awesome. Um, hard to find a lot of other straight up finishes that have us excited, right? Obviously placing 10th at Indy was a disappointment knowing that he kicked off on the front row there after that though, crazy to contemplate Renus's best finish of the year is 11th at Texas best after 10th at the Indy 500 where the carpenter cars were good oh, i feel for that kid but no matter where his finishing position happens to be this kid will fight his balls off and i love him for it um and i also realize and just come to expect sadly that if i look up and see he's running eighth at wherever I don't really commit it to memory because I know there's a very small chance that the checkered flag is going to wave and he's going to be in that position. It's going to be 14th or 17th or 21st or something. And I don't know what it is. It seems to go wrong all the time. But yeah, so Renus did Renus-like things Saturday and Sunday, charged forward, um, did his best, I think he had the best overall finish for ECR. 17th, I think, on Saturday from three cars and six total finishes. 17th was the one, was the happy one. Um, yeah, I am not totally shocked and surprised. Um, it's just a program in pretty heavy need of some significant changes and it's hard to make the big changes halfway through a season if you decide hey we need to level up in this area we need to go hire someone better in this thing whatever it is you are not going to find that next level elite person you're seeking in june <laughs> or july because they're all working for bigger, better teams. Um, you are going to very much have to wait until the end of the season, uh, if not farther into the offseason. So, clearly, 
This is just a team like some others. Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, which I mentioned before, the Toronto to Iowa slide. Meyer Shank Racing, right? We're competitive at Toronto and backslid crazy here. Um, there are quite a few teams in similar territory, Daniel, as ECR. But yeah, um, that was not fun to watch. And it might not be the last time we see that this year. Um, as for Ed, I don't know. I, I can tell you that since going to this third car oval only program in particular, things have just really seemed to not be where they were before. Uh, when he was sharing a car with road slash street course racer X and had you know, long-standing race engineer Matt Barnes calling all the shots. We saw pole positions at the Indy 500 and more. Um, I just don't know if what Ed has for this part-time third entry he steps into is complementing his talents. I also don't know if Ed is able to get the best out of himself in this non-full-time fully warmed and ready and executing at a comfy level like a full season entry would. I don't know. Um, it makes me sad though, Daniel, because I really like Ed and you never want to see someone who's important to the series and fans and has done some really cool things legacy wise be in the final years of their career and just have everything tanking. So I don't know what the answer is, but it ain't whatever's going on right now. As for the Foyt team, um, they were just terrible from the minute they hit the track, and it never got better. So whatever went wrong, how's this? They would have begged to have ECR's problems because <laughs> um, the prospect of finishing anywhere like Arenas, um, you know, that... that that would have been pretty amazing. But yeah, they missed the mark maybe more than they have at any other track this year. Uh, let's see, where do we go? Final couple of questiones. Um, Eric Franklin wondering uh, if Honda's gains for the season were eliminated this last weekend since the tires were gone before the fuel was empty. No, I mean, keep in mind that Honda had a big advantage last year won most of the races uh chevy whooped up on him at iowa so yeah uh honda certainly is caught up this year but yeah there are certain tracks that just lend themselves to the power and delivery attributes peak power as well bottom end torque um right hey long beach toronto detroit uh yeah them hondas <laughs> right really hard to beat uh here we are having seen granted a chevy or honda could have won the indy 500 so that was pretty equal instead of it being all tipped honda's way last year but look uh clearly that track the demands on the motor seem to fit chevy mo better so wouldn't wouldn't describe anything particularly to honda losing out or whatever matt philpot asking 
last time when when was the last time we had two disqualifications in the same race that being peterson yanked off track for uncompetitive speed and the aforementioned stingray rob problems i asked indycar and they couldn't remember uh so yeah nor can i uh so apologies there uh brett keys uh, you say mp compared to nascar where it's common i'm not sure i've ever heard of a guy failing tech in modern indycar and we have had them fail tech after a race but this is leading into qualifying you say why is it so uncommon and second do you know why peterson's 55 car failed qualifying um yeah uh it's uncommon because series tends to be pretty rigorous in its expectations for cars to go through tech indycar's technical director kevin blanche and i say this with a smile and affection he's a complete dick (laughs) right kevin blanche aka rocket a total dick but in the right way granted i don't know how many people are sending him christmas cards from the paddock every year i love him appreciate him known him for i don't know how many years a super extra long time half my life which is depressing let me take a moment um he's unflinching he is unwavering any little thing he doesn't like he's calling you out on any little thing like he is that buzzing hornet in your ear at all times and cuts almost no slack and so his approach to pushing teams and badgering teams and telling them what he wants and what he expects and right i think that just has set up a culture where teams are not trying to play with a lot of wiggle room teams are not man i don't know if we need to go through tech we did that you know before here we didn't do anything major to the car there's no, no no go through make sure you're clear get everything buttoned up um i think it's just more of a culture thing brett uh and yeah good old kev not trying to win the hearts and minds but make sure that everybody complies which is what you would want from a technical director right you don't want the eh, good old shades of gray blanche it's not what you want you want black and white so i think that answers the first part i don't know why the 55 failed i asked was not given specifics but i was told it failed multiple points of inspection in that technical inspection so i think that might be the answer to the question it's one thing if you get one thing that's off try and go back through try and get it what it resolved i think you show up and you know the the red lights blinking on a couple of things at the same time and you're dealing with the driver who is last place in points basically i don't know if that's where you decide to cut slack and embrace the gray area i think if anything you do exactly what you didn't say nope uh ain't having it um jamie dolinger you're asking about what was different about juan montoya running years ago the broken front wing at pocono uh and the downforce and whatnot and the differences there compared to alex polo at toronto um consistent downforce is the thing expected on an oval jamie so I realized that the speeds fluctuate on the straights and the corners, but you're looking for consistent downforce at whatever speed, which allows predictable handling and the ability to race hard. 
rotor street course, especially a street course like this, where you have such massive disparities in speed, um, you are not on the receiving end of consistent downforce. Mechanical grip is a really important thing in a lot of corners where, yes, the downforce helps, but it's not night or day uh, difference. Um, it's going to have less of an effect. Uh, Craig Johnson asking, when should IndyCar move on from the DW12? If I could go back in time, Craig, I would say three years ago, four years ago. Um, when should they? Asking how many more things can they bolt onto the tub before it makes sense to move to a new tub? There's the answer we all know, which is that point has been reached. Um, none of the teams want to go to a new chassis. I shouldn't say none. The majority of the teams don't want to go to a new tub because of the costs. Knowing that we also have the move to hybrid power plants. The leases for those are going to cost more. We don't know exactly how much more, but more for sure. Um, a lot of changes to the vehicles as well. Uh, component, major componentry changes. A lot of, it's going to be an expensive thing per chassis. So that's already going to be expensive. Having to do a new chassis as well is something that most teams have expressed no desirability to fund and support. So I don't know when we've gone beyond the point of reasonable usage. We're now more than a decade into the same car being used. It's not going away anytime soon. And I think since we have passed that point of reasonable, like, Oh my God, how long is this going to be around? It's kind of like the fiance thing, right? Every now and then you hear about, yep, uh, she's my fiance, and you're like, well, but you guys have been together for like 15 years. You haven't gotten married yet. Well, you know, we'll get around to it. We're kind of in that zone where you're like, okay, got it. Uh, if this was going to happen, should have happened a long time ago. It's now so overdue that it's almost comical. It just becomes easier to go, well, <laughs> Yeah, I realized that I proposed to uh, my potential spouse when, you know, George W. Bush was president. But, you know, I mean, hey, if it's working, what's the rush? We're just at that point where you go, okay, I can't come up with a logical argument to demand it because we've surpassed the point where you go, everyone's realized this thing is vintage. So I don't know. Um Let's say I do this for another decade and retire. I feel like I'll just do it forever, but still. There's a significant belief that I have that this DW12 might still be here by the time I retire. So, yeah. Uh, last couple here. Um, Prevco. Who's going to be the first driver to kick off silly season and sign a deal for next year? Well, I think the person who kicks it off privately, at least, is Marcus Erickson. August 1st is the magical date. He's got to watch the clock cross over from how many days are there in July here? Checking the calendar in front of me. 31. Uh, Monday. Next Monday. He needs to stay up. And I don't know if it's Eastern. I don't know what if there's any exact time zone of 
what officially constitutes August 1st, but however that is, he needs for things to cross over from 1159 Monday night, the 31st of July, see it roll over to 12.12:00 Tuesday morning, the 1st, at which point, in theory, if he's sitting there with his team, which I still keep thinking isn't ready auto sport sign that contract and there you go caveat based on what we've seen for a little while last year in particular uh the ganassi team is not keen on drivers or any kind of announcements going on in season want to get through the last race and then hey we'll talk about whatever I wouldn't pretend to know what is in Marcus's contract today or what his future contracts might have, but I do have a sneaking suspicion that there could be something that says, Hey, this is your official negotiation date where you can start talking to others. The minute the clock rolls over to the 1st of August is that date. He could sign a contract right then and there one second in to August 1st. I just got a feeling that there may be a clause in there somewhere that says can't announce anything until the season's over. If I'm wrong, well, I think we're going to find out uh, Tuesday the 1st, but I don't think that's going to be the case. So I think Marcus will be the first mover. Alex Pillow, who we know is not going to be going back to that 10-car Ganassi, uh, Keep in mind that not announcing stuff till the end of the year after the season. Uh, he's got to wait just a little bit till he can formally negotiate with folks. Um, if he goes to Arrow McLaren, <laughs> would Arrow McLaren, Arrow McLaren, I don't believe is under any contract saying when they can or can't announce whatever they want. Um, who knows uh, when that might get announced? But I can tell you, I don't think the Ganassi team is going to be in any rush. Uh, to name Alex's successor. So I think they're going to have everybody on the planet that doesn't have a seat who's really good trying to get into it. So why rush? Um, yeah. Uh, Rosenquist, we'll see. Where does he end up? Is he a Ray Hall guy? Is he a, he's got a couple options. So I think Marcus will be the first to sign. Don't know if the question that I can't answer is who will be the first to say they're going somewhere. Um, that's, that's the uh, interesting part here. Uh, Michael Steenblick say MP long time. No talk, Michael. Come on, man. We, we, we just met and discussed this. You got to step it up. Uh, you say, hope all is going well with your special lady. Thank you. Um, so my question is about David Malukas. To me, he seems Penske perfect. And I think that he has the talent given the car and the team he's with right now. Any chance Penske could go to four cars to tie him up or is he just not on their radar? say i think a fourth car and then replacing will power in a couple of years would prove beneficial for both parties um i don't i don't think he is penske material at present because penske doesn't like strange to which he says and then realizes that they have employed will power for a thousand years um will is a wacky guy but just like murderer hunter killer type and so whatever eccentricities which he didn't necessarily bring with him 
when he got there, right? We learned about those years after. Um, I think Malukas is somebody who they would clearly say, this kid's got talent. He's also really good on ovals, which is rare for a young driver. Um, but I also think he's just too unbuttoned in a super buttoned up team like Penske. So he's grown his hair out, looking a little mangy. He's wacky. He's nicknaming himself and things that I love, we love. Um, I see the opposite, Michael. I see that if you want to replace willpower, you might need to start morphing yourself into that thing that would have Roger Penske go, oh, yes, I see him representing us as a perfect corporate fit uh, along with what he can do on the track. Um, so, no, and I've heard nothing to suggest they would be expanding to four cars. All they do is mention whenever I ask how thankful they are, they went from four down to three because they've gotten much better as a result, and you cannot argue that, uh, the results. Uh, at mzane fifty six one one one. Silly season question. Is Santino staying at AJ Foyt Racing? Um, there is a absolute desire for Santino to stay. Um, I understand he would like to stay. I understand they would like him to stay. They need to make a budget for the 14 car, materialize and be solid before anybody is signed to drive that car next year. So willingness, yes. Got to get the budget side buttoned up. And as we've seen with the Foyt team, that can take a little while. So I don't know. I don't have a feel for when we might hear about whether it's young Mr. Ferrucci or anyone else uh, being in that 14 car next year. Strictly a budget and timing thing. Uh, two to close. Uh, James Rindy car fan. Marshall, first time question asker. Well, thank you. Uh, silly season 2024. It's in full swing. You hear any chatter of any team switching engine manufacturers next season? I heard one. I heard one and was like, ooh, okay, I can rationalize that all on my own. That makes total sense. Spoke to the manufacturer. They said, uh, haven't heard the first whisper of that. Okay. Rang the team. Said, hey, hearing you might be what you're on crack i'm like i am but what does that have to do with me asking dumb questions um yeah and they said no and it wasn't one of those bluffing blustery no's it was a no idiot we're going to be staying with exactly who we're with for many years so i thought that there was one uh now granted if they end up changing i i am going to make my own oscar probably going to be really sad it's probably going to be made out of aluminum foil um and i'm going to hand that to the team owner in question for the best performance in a unscripted drama because i left with no question that they were staying with the manufacturer so i believe the answer is no that's the only one that i've heard of that would be significant in any way and if I was lied to and I bought it hook, line, and sinker, I will be making an aluminum foil Oscar. Uh, we're going to close with our pal Austin Taylor. It says, Marshall, saw you at the IMS Museum during the 500 and was too nervous to say hi. Oh, Austin. You're that, that 
that legitimately makes me sad. Um, if there is any person to not feel nervous to say hi to, I gotta do better. So, you know, it's me because if you haven't figured it out, I'm among the bigger idiots you either know or feel like, you know, so just come up and say hi or shout something really caustic at me. Hey, idiot. I'll turn around every time. Cause I know whomever's saying that is talking to me. Um, say so my question is what are the chances of IndyCar expanding to the Northeast? Love to see New Hampshire come back. Uh, Austin, you are one of many who say this over and over again. And I also feel bad in answering it when I say I've heard nothing to suggest IndyCar is going back to the Northeast. <sighs> Knowing that what NASCAR was just at Loudoun, um, I mean, Dover Downs, Dover Downs, Dover comes to mind. I've been there before. I know Richmond isn't the Northeast. I know it's Virginia and more South, but just that general kind of let's go all the way towards the side of the country over there. I realize it's not exactly the north part you're talking about, but I can't think of anything in that region. Can't think of a Pocono. I don't I don't know of a Watkins Glen coming back in upstate New York. I just I haven't heard of anything to suggest these possibilities are happening now or anytime soon. So I yeah, that makes me sad. By the way, uh, I'll be back at the IMS Museum. I'm hoping during the Brickyard weekend, and for sure, because I'll be there, uh, which would be strange to just go to the museum but not be there for the Brickyard weekend, um, and then also during the IMSA weekend in September. So I'll be there at the Speedway two more times. Uh, I'll be there for the majority of the week for the Brickyard week because I'm going to not go to Nashville, going to IMSA Road America uh, and doing videos there and just trying to give IMSA the love that they deserve. Staying over the Monday morning, the uh, documentary team behind the Win the Weekend awesome GTP documentaries they've been doing asked me to stay over and join them for that. Should be done around 12 or 1 o'clock at uh, Road America on Monday after the event. Then I'll be driving south to Indianapolis. And if all goes well, making a stop to see little Dave, little Dave Malukas, and pay that first ever visit after receiving countless, I think I was the first person to ever receive an invite, to the HMD Barn Grill. So I've texted Dave about that, and uh, I won't see him in Nashville, but in theory I'll see him the day after, and we're going to meet up, and he told me I need to go there and try the food and do a taste test and do whatever. So assuming everything works out, we're going to do that, and I'll film it, and hopefully you can laugh at my expense, if not his. Uh, and then I should be getting into Indianapolis late Monday night and we'll be there the whole week uh, and flying home Saturday night after the race. Uh, so yeah, we'll be there. Um, and then just cause I'm sharing things to close. Uh, I was really bummed, really bummed earlier in the year when two of my favorite bands, Mastodon and Gojira had the mega monsters tour and was supposed to go see them here. I, because I'm dumb. Uh, had the date for the Indy Open test totally wrong, thought I was clear to buy a ticket to go see the two amazing bands that I just love and listen to all the time, and realize that, no, uh, dummy, you got to go to the Indy Open test. 
which I did, um, and thought that that was it. Well, they took a little break after doing the first half of their tour, sent out an email saying, hey, we're continuing the rest of the tour. And I said, great, by chance, let me just look at those dates and found <laughs> the Thursday night I will be in Indianapolis. Um, they're playing two hours southeast in Cincinnati. And I am going and cannot wait. So if you're a listener of the show and you're a lover of Mastodon and or Gojira or both, and you're in the greater Indianapolis area, um, or you're a mechanic or you're whatever on a team, who knows, but you want to go see these two amazing bands. I'll be doing that Thursday night because I love myself. And this is the one thing really kind of for myself that I really wanted to do this year that fell through and I was so bummed about. And you talk about that feeling like you're super blessed and have an amazing life. The one thing I would have been sad to have missed out on this year, planets have aligned and I will indeed be able to go see two of my favorite bands while on the road. Uh, I'm having to wear like seven layers of hearing protection um, just so I'm not deaf by the end of it, but I can't wait. So that's the show that I got for you. Thank you for all the questions you sent in. Uh, realize that I didn't get to everybody's question. Uh, Joey Gorgelione asked, why did IndyCar stop listing prize money for drivers? Uh, it's when in the what mid-late 2000s they went to the Leader Circle program where they stopped giving big prize money per race and just divvied it up among the top 20 plus teams so that they get guaranteed prize money um yeah uh, it's just stopped being a thing and they still pay out prize money but it's a pittance of uh what it was but anyways appreciate all of y'all who sent in questions we'll look forward to those that come in next week and until then i'm marshall pruitt thank you for listening to our podcast brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com and discount tire